Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn about future planning, growing better services and better businesses through visioning with my guest today, Ari Weinzweig. So let's let's talk a little bit about Zingerman's, because okay. I know that from what Rich has told me that you just started, you didn't start the business, you bought the business. No. No. So tell me, tell me the story. Okay. The story is, I grew up in Chicago. I came to Ann Arbor to go to U of M, which for those who don't live here is University of Michigan. Uh, I studied Russian history, particular focus on the anarchists. Uh, we have the largest anarchist collection in the country. It's here at University of Michigan in the grad library called the Labadee Collection. Didn't know that. Yeah, it's a lot we don't know. And after graduating, uh, although visioning is now a huge piece of what we do here at Zingerman's, which is very tied to positive psychology, I had no vision whatsoever. I had only what David White, I don't know if you know his books, W-H-Y-T-E, uh, writer, poet, very good. Yes, uh, I do know it, his work. Okay, he calls it the via negativa. <laughs> uh, that's where you're clueless about where you want to go, but you're really clear where you don't want to go. And that's kind of all I had, which is... I knew I didn't want to go home. Uh, in order to not go home, I needed a job, and I'd driven a cab while I was in school, which was fine, but not particularly interesting. Uh, and so one of my roommates was waiting tables at a restaurant in downtown Ann Arbor, which is 12 minutes from here, because everything in Ann Arbor is 12 minutes from everything else at the most. Uh, and uh, so I went in there and applied for a job as a server, and they interviewed me, and they said they would call me, but they didn't. And so I went back after a couple of weeks, and I reapplied as a busser. And they said they'd call me, and they didn't. Clearly, the employment market was very different then than it is today. And uh, so I waited two more weeks. They still hadn't called me, and I went back, and I was like, hey, I'm running out of money. Do you have anything? They offered me a job washing dishes, and I just said, sure, why not? And that's how I got started. So uh, there was zero entrepreneurial interest. I come from a family where no one was in business, so I didn't even know you could go into business, and it mostly seemed like business did bad things to people, And I, you know, but I needed a job, so whatever. Uh, and I had no particular interest in food. It was just I needed a job. Uh, so I just got lucky because I totally stumbled into work that I love and then also into great people. So my partner, Paul Saginaw, was the general manager at that restaurant. Uh, Frank Parola, who's one of the partners in our bakery, was a line cook. And Maggie Bayless, who's one of the partners or the founding partner in Zing Train, which is our training business, was a cocktail waitress. So I have no idea why we were all in there together, uh, but we were. And we're now 40 years later and we're still working together. But anyway, uh, that's amazing. Frank started teaching me how to prep and cook the line, and I started managing kitchens. So, in food lingo, uh, my background is all back of the house. 
Uh, and then I, Paul left about halfway through the four years I worked there, and he opened Monaghan's Seafood Market with Mike Monaghan, which will be unfamiliar to you, but is really one of the best fish markets in the country still. And he and I, Paul and I stayed friends. And fall of 81, I reached a point in my work there where it's not like I hated going to work and it was not like it was a bad company, but it was just sort of less and less inspiring. And I guess intuitively I could sense more and more where they were going and where I was going, but in the same place. And so I, November 181, I gave too much notice, unsure of what would be next, but it was just time to move on. And Paul, not knowing I had given notice, called me like three days later and he said that there was this little building coming open and we had talked off and on, you know, like people in the food business, like, Positive psychologists probably don't get together and talk about starting a new university, but maybe they do, but <laughs> but they should. But anyway, so he had grown up in Detroit where you could get good deli food and in Chicago you could get it, but you couldn't get it here. And so somehow within like a week, we decided we were going to open and four and a half months later we were open. So March 15th, wow. 1982 is when we opened. Uh, have you never been to the deli? No. Oh, well, you got a whole... I've got a food tour, yeah, you know? Well, it's too small for you to read, but all those things at the bottom are Hey, I can read here. it. I got my glasses on now. Okay. You got, yeah, you can do a whole day of just going to what we do. But anyway, when we started, it was just 1,300 square feet. So like about the size of this room that we're in right now. Uh, me and Paul with two employees, 29 seats and 25 sandwiches. And that's it. And now what are we looking at? We're looking at... Uh, we're looking at, depending on how you count, I don't know what we got, 12 businesses, but everything's here in the Ann Arbor area. Uh, I don't, I really have a, I had it already, but a stronger, even stronger now belief uh, in doing business in the place that you are and that... To connect. Yeah, to everything. It just doesn't, the other way is not interesting to me and it seems very industrial and everybody likes local but then they want to apply local solutions globally which is the antithesis of local like it doesn't make sense it's, it's incongruous anyway so everything's here within 10 minutes or 15 minutes of each other and when you talk about the, the 12 businesses it's not just the restaurant business it's no no so we so anyway we will do this year about 65 million dollars in sales and we have about 700 employees now plus we hire about 350 more at the holidays for mail order but yes we have the deli we've expanded one two three times so it's way bigger than it was uh right now we're sitting at zingerman's roadhouse which is uh which is a restaurant which is all regional american food so everything from oysters to barbecue to fried chicken to macaroni to, to great food. coffee i, I pulled up from our coffee roasting business so well you pulled up so that's a little trailer 1952 spartan trailer that people, as you experience, drive up, and that's why you thought that was all there was. No, no, no. I, I knew, so, I knew, I knew there was more, but I got here so early. I mean, we probably should back up and say that I sort of rolled in at dawn on the red eye yeah. for the positive business conference at University of Michigan, 
And I was like, all right, I knew we had our appointment, but I said, let me have a little experience, yeah. you know, and yeah, independ totally. independent no, of you. I'm all for it. And, and, you know, what I saw were people that were happy to be there to serve, you know, the, the kids that yeah. were serving really early in the morning. And I just sat there in, and the, rain. in the rain and, and observed. So there's something, there's a little bit of magic that comes along with you, Ari. And I, well, that's, yeah. that's what I want to. That's what we're going to talk about. Yeah. Well, well, anyway, let me roll through the business. Roll so we, get that out of the way. we have a little creamery where we make handmade cream cheese, old school, like it was done in 1900, which is all the food we do is traditional old style food. Uh, and we make uh, gelato, goat cheese and stuff there. We have a bakery, we, you know, everything, bread, pastry and all that. Coffee, I mentioned uh, a little candy business. We make handmade candy bars. Uh, Corman Farms is our event space. So that's about 10 minutes west of here. It's at 1834 farmhouse and an 1837 barn, which uh, we totally renovated and we do like weddings and corporate stuff like that. Miss Kim is a little Korean restaurant. Uh, Zing Train is our training business, so we teach seminars. People come from all over and we go to them also. In fact, I'm doing one in San Francisco in June. Um, but anyway, what am I forgetting? Mail order, we ship all over the place. And our food tours is formally our newest business, uh, even though we've been doing them for about 20 years. And then each business, we have managing partner or partners in that business. And we operate as one organization with these semi-autonomous pieces. Mm. So when, when you talk about the, the, the what is it, the food train, food tour? Yeah. Um, what is that? It's like people pay and we a group of 15 18 whatever and they christy brayblack is the partner in there and so they go you know to visit people that produce food that we buy so you're like going to the producers and then you might go to wineries and eat in good restaurants and basically have a week-long food experience of wherever hungry or the region of italy or whatever so it's a it's a travel component yeah yeah, but they're little groups. I mean, it's not like a hundred people. Right, right. What a dozen? Yeah, yeah, like fifteen or yeah. 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 That that's pretty cool. Yeah. And well, where's your favorite place? My favorite place to travel to. To travel. I don't know if I have a favorite, but I like a lot of places: Italy, Spain. I like Santa Fe. I like I like San Francisco, although it's getting so crowded and. Yeah. More and more like New York, but and uh, expensive. <laughs> more and more like New York, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I like lots of places. So in the businesses, I like Ireland. I've never been to Ireland. I've been there like twenty times. How's the food? Great. You just have to know where to go. It's the food is fantastic because they basically flunked out on the industrial revolution, and so. Uh, in the yellow book there, there's an essay on 12 natural laws of business, and one of them is that strengths lead to weaknesses, and so whatever you're good at or will lead to what you're not good at, and whatever you're not good at also leads to something that is can turn out to be good. So they did so badly in many parts of the Industrial Revolution that most of their farmland was never converted to mass market industrial mm. monocropping, and so... You had the perfect setting to start growing all this really great food. Interesting. Let's talk a little bit about the books because okay. another part of what you do is you are a prolific writer and producer of 
books, A Lapsed Anarchist's Approach to, I'm holding Managing Ourselves, yeah. A Lapsed Anarchist's Approach to Being a Better Leader, yeah. A Lapsed Anarchist's Approach to Building a Great Business, A Lapsed Anarchist's Approach to the Power of Beliefs in Business, and yeah. that was the one that grabbed yeah, my eye. These two pamphlets are not in those books. Yeah, these, these are like yeah, little manifestos. There's food books, too. The Art of Business and bottom line change, and then yeah. f food books were... Um, with Couple food books, too. So, like, when do you have any spare time? Just make it happen. You make it, ha yeah, make it happen. I, 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 well, I wrote an essay in Managing Ourselves about time management that tells what I do. Here comes that break. We'll be right back. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. And we are back talking about the power of future planning, growing better services and better businesses through visioning with my guest today, Ari Weinzweig, let's get back to the conversation. I have the belief that most people have very unhealthy relationship with time. Talk a little bit about that. What, time is being the most precious commodity. Yeah, but I've come to say that people, so like somebody who's suffering from anorexia thinks about food a lot, and I think about food just as much. <laughs> but they think about food, and I'm not blaming them because it's a disease. But, I mean, they, they think about food in a very fearful, negative way, and it takes over. Whereas I think about food in a joyful, positive, ex, you know, learning, experiential kind of way. And I think most people's relationship with time is all about fear of losing it, and they're mad at it. And, you know, people always are, you know... They're pissed off at time because there's not enough and da da da, da. And, you know and I'm like okay you have a relationship with time so think about is there any relationship in your life where you're always mad at the other person and it goes well good point answer no and and also the answer is in another relationship at least generally the other person's trying to or to accommodate what's important to you but yeah. time's not going to change so it only one that could change is me. The relationship to time and the, yeah. pres the preciousness times of it. Is, time's what it is. Yeah. So then, you know, is so I actually wrote a vision and it's in the book for a, a positive relationship with time. And so, so I kind of feel like there's always time. Well, if you make it. It's a there. We all have uh, Jean-Louis Servan Schreiber wrote a really great little book called The Art of Time. And I'm paraphrasing, but he said, the paradox of time is that although everybody wants more, the reality is we all have access to all of it. And what do we do with it? Are we spending it sort of uh, surfing well, the internet, or are we? Yeah. Or we're we being an artist because this yeah. is another angle of yeah, of of, that's of the your work. That just came right. Out. Yeah. Is about making art in what we do. Yeah. Yeah. Which is what you've done with that's this right. empire you've yeah. built. Yeah. I don't like to look at it as an empire, though, because it's the opposite of anarchism. But more, but people say it all the time. But it's true. Well, it's, I would say it's more of a collaborative or a collective or some word like that. Like empire would envision somebody ruling the empire from some central thing, and we don't even have a center. 
Yeah, I, 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 I get you. But this is, a, this is the product, the, the, the gift of your artistry. Well, yeah, but the, art, the part of the artistry is to bring other people's artistry to the fore. And so, uh, you know, the, the old, that model of hierarchical rulership, which is, endem- which is everywhere, even in many progressive organizations. Uh, I'm speaking this morning to a group of nonprofit leaders that are here for training, and a lot of nonprofits with really inspiring missions, but they're still run like General Motors. Yeah. which is in Congress. Uh, so so the idea is to really create a setting in which everyone is thinking like a leader. And that's clear from when you walk in the door Good. to this place. At least my experience yeah. was I was, you know, greeted with a lot of personal... Good. It's kind and, of random. I mean, you're greeted at 7 a.m. 7 a.m. on a rainy day by happy faces who are apologetic for the, the delayed onset of spring in Michigan. And eager, yeah. and eager to please and bring me some ruby red grapefruit juice just yeah, because it's good. Yeah. Just because it, just because it's good. Yeah. And they wanted to share something good. Yeah. And I think that's it's a nice way to live. That's the spirit. Yeah. It's a very nice way to live. Yeah. And, you know, coming from um, the West Coast, coming from Los Angeles and how life operates at breakneck speed. When we talk about time, it's gobbled up by traffic. Yeah. By, that's part of why I live here. Yeah. I never sit in traffic. It's 12 minutes. Yeah. You just, that's it. There's like a 15 minute rush hour, but if you just oh, no. avoid that. Oh, no. yeah. it's, it's all pretty good. Yeah. So talk a little bit about this new pamphlet, The Art of Business. Yeah. So the fourth book in the series that you referenced about beliefs is basically based, is basically based, is based on a self-fulfilling belief cycle, which you probably already know from your studies, but I learned it from Bob Wright in Chicago, who he and his wife, Judith Wright, run the Wright Institute, and Bob can't remember where he learned it, so I don't know who to give total credit to, but I learned it from him. So it's, it's based on a self-fulfilling belief cycle, which, you know, I didn't make up. Right. Uh, but when I learned about it, it kind of blew my mind because it, actually helped me there was an organizational issue like not cataclysmic but just something that was frustrating me for quite a while and i tried everything in these books and nothing was working and <laughs> it just kept bothering me and when i read that i was like oh i totally get it all the other things won't work because they don't believe in the work and they weren't bad people and they weren't not yeah. committed and they weren't yada, yada, yada. it's just if you don't believe in what you're doing you won't do it well and you know, so I did the only thing history majors know how to do, which is start studying. And then I kept reading and then it blew my mind more and I kept reading and it blew my mind more and on we go. So it turned into a 600 page book. But anyway. And that's I, how you roll. Well, <laughs> you don't do it lightly. No, if you're going to do something, do it. Yeah. So anyway, the self-fulfilling belief cycle basically says what I believe is true. We all have thousands of beliefs. We got beliefs about biscuits. We got beliefs about books. Like we do all the design and we print them here in town and we're off of Amazon because I don't like that that much. And, you know, I like nice paper and whatever. So we have beliefs about everything. What we believe leads us to take action, which would include us even sitting here today is based on what we believe. Based on our actions, the people around us start to form their own beliefs and based on those beliefs they take action so yeah. if you imagine it as a circle it leads almost always 90 percent of the time right back to your original belief right so 
if you change your belief, things start to play out differently. Change your mind, change yeah, your so world kind of thing. You're kind of a jerk and you're here to take advantage, I don't know, whatever, then I'm going to be stingy and then you're going to think I'm a phony because I wrote the, you know, whatever. So it would lead to very negative outcomes. Whereas if I believe what I believe, which is you're a nice person, I don't really know you yet, but we're getting to know each other and start with believing the best, which is positive psychology, then it's going to go well. And interesting things are going to happen. And I don't know where it's going to lead, but it'll lead to something interesting. So with all of that in mind, I started to realize as I was drawing to the end of the book that like artists, whether musicians, whatever, like artists experience the world differently. Yeah. Right. And so, uh, and then if you started to think of yourself as if your life was art, you would pay more attention because once the brushstroke goes on the painting, it's staying there. And, and so it, it's, it became this really, interesting idea that sort of stayed with me and then it kept resonating and and then one little piece of the cycle is that sort of based on what we believe we all and there's i'm sure there's a technical phd's positive psychology word for it like (laughs) cognitive bias i think it is but so we all filter out the information that doesn't fit with what we believe and we all take in the information that supports what we believe. It's called movie making. Okay. And if you're, well, and if you're, <laughs> right? If you're a high achiever, like everybody who's listening to this pretty much is likely to be, then we actually go out and look for information that supports what we believe. But you see and experience things differently when you have the belief that it matters, right? So if you bring a visual artist into this room, they're going to see more than you are likely to see. It's not that you're not capable of seeing it. You're just not going to look in the same way. If, well, if the brain the food. brain is not wired at that uh, to yeah, see that. But it can be for an artist. They're more left brain, right? So they're seeing. Yeah, but I, I, my personal belief is it's just practice, and anybody can learn to. I mean, like I don't have kids, so I pay zero attention to the car seat or to what kind of you know shoe they're wearing. But I guarantee you that a parent with little kids will notice because they were just shopping for it yeah you know i listen to a lot of music but i'm not a musician so a musician will listen differently you know an engineer will look at the ceiling differently than i do you know and it, and but i think you're we're all capable of that we just aren't paying attention in that way and higher attention makes things more interesting and so uh artists i realized if we looked at our lives like art then every little thing matters right so the way you treat the cashier at the drugstore is part of your It art. matters. And, you know, so I was, I gave a little talk to, I don't know, 30, I don't know how old they were, 19, 18, 20-year-olds, you know, from the community college. And, you know, I just was like, hey, like, I get it. Like, when I was 20, like, you think you're going to live forever. And that's a nice belief, but it's not true. And I said, but if, you know, just, I know it's, like it was overwhelming for me and I had no clue what I was going to do when I was 20. But I guess if you look at it like you're making music for the ages, like what music are you making that in 50 years people are going to be excited to listen to? Because that's what we're doing. And if you go into it as just get through the day, which, you know, Maslow's hierarchy and all that, I understand if people are living, trying to pay the bills, 
it's less of an issue, you know, they don't have the space mentally or whatever to maybe think about it. But I think there's so much opportunity to just create beauty and appreciate beauty. Well, again, it's placing your attention to the yeah. value of, yeah. of that beauty. And yeah. even though somebody may just be working on survival, yeah. you know, they still can do that. And so the experience becomes yeah. more joyful. Yeah. And then if they're more joyful, it's all more joyful. That's a positive contagion. things like, you know, your necklace today, you know, that are nice and they're here anyway. Why not notice them? Yeah, and like your T-shirt, which I like. Which my T-shirt comes out of this, so it's uh, it's from the artwork. The story's in the pamphlet, but uh, 15 or so years ago, I was in New York City, and I was walking down the street in Soho, and I saw this guy who's selling his artwork on the table, and I really liked it. He, his name's Patrick Earl Barnes, and he paints on, like, pieces of produce crate. So, of course, it was basically folk art. It's not produce crate wood, so I like that. Yeah. We have a lot of produce crates. <laughs> uh, anyway, I bought a few pieces, and I took it home with me. And then, I don't know, over the years, I bought more. I mean, they're not super expensive. And I have, like, 15 of them hanging in my house. And, uh, you know, at some point, I started emailing with him. And, you know, I kept saying, like, like I'm a total introvert, so we never have anybody at our house. So I'm like... Why don't you put it on your art on a T-shirt? It's perfect for it because then I can wear it to work. And then people, like, I feel bad because they're never going to see your stuff here. But anyway, so finally, after like three years, I was working on this. And then his e-news came and it had this painting that said, art is how you think. And I'm like, wow, That's it. this is perfect. <laughs> so I finally got him to put his art on a T-shirt. So I have that T-shirt. This is a scratch board, which is what the drawings in all the books are, of me wearing the T-shirt. So this is our art of his art. I get it. It's a little Escher-esque. It is. Well, I, I, I like the message, though. You no, know, it's fabulous. It's a fabulous message. Right. And he's great. Yeah. And we don't think of it. Like, we don't think that our thought is a, right. is a form right. of artistry. All, if you think of it, it's all art, then there's like every little thing can be this creative act and it's just more interesting it's more fun and it creates positive energy because that's what art is yeah right? and so like when you realize like a you know waiting on a guest is art walking down the street is art if you choose to approach it that way here comes that pause we'll be right back and that is a guarantee did you know that happiness is actually good for your health Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Talking about growing better services and building better businesses with my guest, Ari Weinswag. Let's get back to the conversation. Well, it goes back to that connection thing, mm -hmm. that that is what we're here to do. And there is yeah. an art yeah. to being able to connect. And the books that you've written, the products that you deliver in your trainings, the, the food that you bring to tables is an expression of yeah. that artistry and that desire to connect. 
Yeah. Which is, I mean, that's, that's all there is. Yeah. Yep. So when people come to your trainings and they come from uh, a different industry, maybe yeah. they come from yeah. Yeah. high tech, yeah. and then it's broken down to this very elemental sensory yeah. experience. Yeah. What do they say? Like, well, they all say different things because everybody's different. But I mean, by definition, as you already know, I mean, we attract the people most who are already inclined to learn what we like you who are already inclined. Drinking the Kool-Aid. <laughs> Yeah, although I don't like that because the people who drink the Kool-Aid died. So it's actually an interesting thing that everybody uses that phraseology. But I just changed this, the K to C, and then it's we ate the cool. cool, cool, which makes more sense. But anyways, uh, so yeah, they're you know they're just more inclined to this way of thinking because we all go and seek out what fits. But you know, I think a lot of what we have done over the years and a lot. I, you know, Maggie from Zingtrain, who's a German lit major from Oberlin, but went back to Michigan and got her MBA and really came to be passionate about training. And so a lot of this, the work of thinking this way came, the structuring of it came from her leadership and teaching. And then, but it, like the world is very complex, which is not a bad thing, even though people now are mad about complexity. It's like, no, it's like Carl Rogers said, it's a, it's a higher form of life. So it, it's supposed to get more complex. Yes. Right. The problem is then they diminish the complexity because they have a hard time dealing with it. But I want to honor the complexity. But you, I think that we've created simple models and recipes through which the complexity can be processed so it doesn't try to crush the complexity it's just saying like here's a framework like the art thing it's simple through that lens it's like incredibly complicated kaleidoscopic whatever word you want to use but that's cool but it gives you this one frame through which you can look just at things that concept of your life is art go out and like do your canvas yeah. or whatever yeah. whatever that modality yeah. is do it well do it yeah. passionately yeah. do it in a in the most alive loving way yeah. that you can yeah and that's that is joy yeah, yeah. and and you know it's it's funny i was thinking about how we got to one another that we you have a friend Rich Sheridan, mm -hmm. who is one of the co-founders of Menlo Innovations. And yeah. I had um, Rich on the show a few months ago, and we really connected. Um, we were talking about his new book. And he was like, you've got to meet this guy, because he thought that, that we would yeah. have some synergy. And yeah. well, I, pretty much anybody who likes us will like them. And yeah, exactly. Them like us, right. So, yeah. And that is, it's, it's tribal in a way. But it's also like saying, all right, this person wants to make the world a better place. They're doing what they yeah. love. This yeah. person wants to make the world a better place doing what they love. Yeah. I don't think it's tribal because it's not exclusive and it's not it's trying inclusive. to. It's not, it's not an us versus them. It's just shared values and beliefs. And one of them is around spirit of generosity. So then it's an openness to the world, you know. So it's. It's, it's, I think it's much of the world is organized around groups and clubs and tribes. And I, there's some positive feeling of connection that people like, but it's being used incessantly uh, in destructive 
my opinion, destructive ways. Well, not to, uh, and the idea is not to exclude, but to right. include. Right. And that's what I mean, it's tribal yeah, I in, in its best light, where it's like, you know, every, everybody <clears throat> gets to be a, a part of. Right. And you mentioned the word generosity. It's just a tribe that's not determined by blood. By blood, by by religion, money, money. Or anything else, I guess. But I, po- I guess politics. Where, it's just if I guess I just look at it like everybody is a unique individual, and that although one can put people, assign people to groups, it's always fallacious yeah. at some level. Because if we were to say like that, the big cataclysmic difference in the United States was tall people versus short people or that old film with blue-eyed kids and brown eyed, you know they're just constructs that people made up and then they start assigning statistical mm. norms to those groups and then they start saying you know and then this is my anarchism stuff but because people are all we're all raised to think hierarchically almost all uh, then we don't even know it but if like if you can here's two things if you can if you believe you can assign characteristics to a group, which is both, it's not anybody can assign them, but they're, they're, it's, they're not accurate. So if you, but if you believe you can say women this or men this or Jews this or black people this, and then you think hierarchically, it's either your group's better than my group or my group's better than your group and no one wants to be worse. So they always have to assert their superiority and it's it's so endemic that people don't even know it and so like sports which i'm not down on but like people you know whatever raider fans are this it's religion niner it is religion. <laughs> it's religion it is religion and they say things about raider fans or 49er fans that if you said them about women or black people or jewish people or Republicans or, or Democrats. Right, it, would, it would be completely appropriately unacceptable. Yeah. But if but if we allow it here and actually encourage it and think it's fun, it's the same thing going on in society. Going back to Carl Rogers in this sort of the Rogerian approach to connection that there's just unconditional positive regard f- yeah. for another yeah. living, breathing human <clears throat> being. Yeah. Because you exist, because you yeah. are, yeah. therefore you are deserving. Yeah. Well, there's a quote in here uh, in the Beliefs book. I read Isaac Asimov's biography. I don't know why I read it, but I liked his science fiction when I was a kid. <laughs> and a lot of the science fiction writers turned out to be anarchists and very interesting thinkers. But in that era of the mid-20th century where it was dangerous to do that, they put their theories onto other planets where people couldn't bother them about it. But anyway, I, I like Asimov. They were very creative thinkers about society and, uh, and stuff. So anyways, they he wrote in his biography, or in the biography, there's a quote from him, and it said, basically, I just choose to believe that everybody's a good person because every once in a while they're not, but the pain... And, and cynicism that goes with choosing to believe they're not a good person makes my life worse. <laughs> and so the, the, the struggle of the few that let me down is far less than the negativity that I would live with if I go into life like that. Yeah, well, I think it so. does dictate experience, right? Yeah. So, you know, how, how we show up in the world will yeah. not always predict the experience because sometimes we're surprised, yeah. but... I'm okay with that, to yeah. be surprised. Well, of course, and but to, that's the thing. And of, to, and to that's fail. the belief cycle and, and the evidence and the way we look at things. So 
Uh, Ursula K. Le Guin is the other one I was trying to think of. So she just passed away a few years ago. But she was very anarchistic in her other planets and what she did. But, uh, you know, they were very creative thinkers. I don't know. For me, I, I guess it's because I've been doing this so long. I think of the world as a pretty hospitable place right. in the midst of inhospitable acts happening, yeah. not the other way around. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I, I just my own belief is that even the people who are doing the inhospitable acts, which are clearly can, like in Sri Lanka the other day, could be pretty inhospitable, still believe they're doing the right thing. Yeah. Well, and the, yes, I, I get what you're saying, and the the, motiv- the motivation, the the lens through which we view the world, right. changes everything. Which is why the country can't, like half the country, reads the same news story as the other one and comes to 180 degree opposite conclusions because they're that's what they're going to just keep confirming their beliefs and yeah. that. And and what I learned, which I'm sure you learned a long time ago in school, but it's like you can't make anybody change what they believe. And I, I, the more, the harder you try, the worse it gets. And I, uh, out of this fourth book on beliefs, I actually started this whole model of an organizational ecosystem. And I started to imagine beliefs as the root system because you can't see them, but everything that comes up, like our behavior is based on what's happening underground. And in fact, the harder you try to make somebody change their beliefs, the deeper the roots go. Yes. Uh, which is evidence, being evidenced nationally in politics right now. Uh, it's not going to change. Like, no one changes their mind unless you, you can change your beliefs, but you have, it's either you choose to or something totally incongruous happens, you know, like the racist, the guy who has strong racist beliefs but is saved by an African American, you know, or. You know, you believe women can't be leaders, but then one day your cousin or your friend just really, you know, steps up in the moment and you're like, wow, my belief is wrong. You know, so people do. We clearly change our beliefs. I mean, there's historical examples all the time. But what I realize the obvious, I mean, like I can't make anybody change their beliefs. But you can demonstrate another yeah. Oh, yeah. another way and that's where the yeah. leadership comes of in course. yeah but whether they choose to change them or not is up to them so like you know i come from a fairly religious family i don't believe there's nothing they're going to do that's going to make me change that and there's nothing i'm going to do that's going to make them change it either yeah. so like i can give them a lot of evidence but they're going to show me why i'm wrong and not in an argumentative way my sister and i get along great but i don't try to change her mind and she doesn't try to change mine well, some things just are, and that's okay. No, every, yeah, totally. <laughs> you know, it's like right. Well, that's the point. Is yeah, that we can allow as long as everybody can be allowed to believe what they want to believe without impinging on the other people, then it works. The problem becomes when people start to impose their own beliefs, and then here we are, you know, intermingled in a hot mess. Yeah, <laughs> it's the dig- allowing somebody the dignity of their process. Yeah, you know, like yeah. we don't have to agree. But I, va- I value your opinion. Yeah. And therefore, you have that space. Yeah. To just be and yep. do. Yep. We're going to just dash off to that break and we will be right back. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound and HarvestingHappiness.com Here's a truth bomb. 
Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Continuing the conversation with my guest today, Ari Weinswag, we're talking about future planning, what it means to grow better services and better businesses through intentional visioning. Let's get back to that conversation. You, you know what? You are a high output individual. Okay. That's what I, that's what I like. When I look at the, what you create and the projects that you take on, I'm like this guy, the, the, the making, you're a maker. You call it you call it artist, but it's also like a maker. You like yeah. to make well, that's things. That's what artists do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, everybody's making something. Everybody's making. Something. It's just whether they're cognizant of what they're yeah. making. Uh, if they're making trouble, or they're making, or they're making. Yeah. Well, art is you know can be interruptive too. I mean, it's supposed to get your attention. So, it's just what's the intent of the artist, right? And so, if the intent of the artist is to destroy, which you know, I studied Russian history, so the nihilists or the nihilists or however you like to say it from the 19th century, like that was their, I mean, it's a fascinating group and a fascinating period, but it was basically about destruction mm. and that that was a creative act, right? And so, you know, it, it comes from a a very low hope. There's a couple essays in this book about hope, creating hope in the workplace and how to actively create hope and how to avoid crushing hope but you know when you have low hope then you have you also have low fear and when you have low fear you take reckless actions because it doesn't seem like it matters that's interesting like go back to that for a second the, the okay. low hope because so hope, so hope is such an integral part of when we talk about positive psychology correct. and and values in action going back to chris peterson's yeah. work yeah. right that without hopefulness right. it's pretty hard right to find happiness yeah. but what you're saying in the in the context of business i believe is yeah. that when there is low hope there's low fear and then you take a risk that might just be a Positive one. Posit no, I'm saying you take a risk that's a negative one. Ah, okay. Like you, if you, if you have low hope for the future. Well, okay. So if you Google the last election, hope, and something like that, I think in the Atlantic Monthly there was a very interesting article which will show you the the, the number one, the most seemingly the most interesting correlation. Be or contrast between Trump voters and Clinton voters was their hope level, which totally correlates with this. So if you have low hope, then it, you have low fear. See, when I have high hope for the future, like I could, you know, whatever, like 
you know, I like you, but if I didn't like you, which we all don't like somebody, then I just could throw these biscuits at you because, like, whatever, I don't care. If we're going out of business next yeah. week anyway. What's who cares? But if you have high hope for the future, then it's like, well, why would I would never throw a biscuit at a customer because it would have major implications. If you don't care about your job and you think it's a dead end, why would you do good work? So, people with hope for a better future, fear with your kids. Like if you had low hope for your kid, you wouldn't be that worried about getting them into college. True, but the, the, the other side of it is the, the what the hell when when the, when hope is low. Like all right, you're sort of at your wits end, right. and you do take the risk. There is no hope. Sometimes that works out. Sometimes. It's the other way around. <clears throat> that's what yeah, I thought you I, were talking no, about. I think for me that's a different thing because that was realizing. As somebody who grew up with a ton of fear, and I'm still afraid of pretty much everything, I just learned to go ahead anyway. That's a whole other talk. Well, I got <laughs> yeah. a million talks. We're barely just beginning. I know. But, uh, no, I'm afraid of everything. But I realize I just learned the hard way, and I mean the hard way. Like it's all risky. So once I realize it's all risky, then there's no safe way. Like it's all risky. It's interesting because do you really think it's risky when you play out the, the possible scenarios? Yeah. Like being in business is risk. Like, yes, and you could fail. Like selling the business today seems in some ways safer, but then that has, like, there's always problems that will come from everything. So, natural law number nine on that list is success means you get better problems. So, it's really just picking what problems. Higher quality problems. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I didn't say bigger, I said better. So, like, I'm choosing the problem of staying, in, like, it's hard to stay in business. So yeah, in some ways I would it imagine, would be easier yes. easier to sell the business, in theory, and get money like people do. But then you have a different problem. Now, what do you do? And you um, have to do something. Right. As humans, we have to do. I like what I do, so why do I, and I don't really, I mean, money's good, don't get me wrong, but I'm not driven by money, and I have pretty much what I want now. So getting a lot more money, but then living 30 years aimless, like I meet all these people who sell their businesses, but then they never find anything that they really want to do. No. Not all of them, but so it's like, why, this is the work, right, is to help, you know, Emily Moy to get to her dreams and you know if i can do that then that's the work so why why leave <laughs> is emily moy one of your students no emily no the students are from the executive leadership institute emily moy works here and james works here uh, they're coming from all over the country to learn our visioning process well they're here for a week they do this thing with the school of social work and every year they bring them here and I teach something for two hours. I think last year I taught hope. Uh, and then uh, they have lunch and then they take them back to campus and they keep going for three days. Yeah, hope, hope is a really juicy topic. Well, it's just, I realized the hard way that, which the story's in the book, but, you know, inadvertently we all crush hope. And we, when people, I mean, I read it from, Rick Snyder, who in Michigan was the governor, so you have to clarify, but the guy from Kansas, who I never met, passed away a few years ago, positive psychologist, and then Shane Lopez, who was his student, who wrote about Hope also, and so it's like, yeah, duh, people with low hope don't do good work. Whoa, <laughs> in hindsight, super shocking, yeah. but I never thought about it, right? So 
if you have people in your organization that are have low hope or kids in a school room, classroom that have low hope, they're not going to do good work. Then I realized, okay, well, lo and behold, we inadvertently crush hope through callous comments, cynicism, ignoring people all day long. So we basically are paying them X, then we reduce their hope through our own you know, unintentional but un ineffective work. So now we're paying them the same to do less effective work because we did something. But conversely, for like zero cost, we could actually be increasing their hope in the same time it takes to crush the hope. And when they have high hope, like all these statistics show like way better work, better longevity, better emotional resilience, better Which leadership. I wanted to add, go into that about sort of the holistic approach yeah. to to all of this. I mean, the books that you've written really are geared towards t towards business and 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 yeah, but they're really about life. I mean, yes, and and it went when because I look at it as all one life. I don't like the work that I wrote a lot about it, but I think the work life balance construct is terrible, super destructive. Well, it should be integrated and it's through and through. Yeah. yeah, it's all one life. That yeah. how you show up at the office is right. how you show up right. for life. Right. And so part of why I've realized over the years, and I, I keep learning more all the time, of course, but is that part of why what we do works is because what we teach people is 100% applicable in their life outside of work, whereas what most people are learning at work is off, is either different and or the opposite of what they want to do outside of life. So, so at work, they teach them to be competitive and dominate and crush the competition and outdo your colleague in the other department and fight for the resources. To win. But then you're supposed to go home and be calm and generous and collaborative and it doesn't, like, people can't do it. And so what we're teaching here is totally all of these skill sets, visioning, building. Like if you have a kid, don't you want, you need to help them build their own. If you're doing anything, it's way, it works way better if you have a vision of where you're going. Yeah. Uh, if you have negative beliefs, it's going to cause negative outcomes because negative roots create weeds and positive beliefs create good things. So if you have negative beliefs about your significant other, or you have negative beliefs about your neighbor or your parents or yourself, it's going to be doomed. So all the stuff they're learning here can be used outside of work because it's all one existence. It's the yoga of life. I mean, that's really what it sounds like. You know, I'm, I, I, and I, I use that as the metaphor, but I, I practice yoga. I practiced it for 20 years. And I, how I step out into yeah. the world, yeah. for, for me, yeah. aligns with how I step onto that mat. Yeah. And I think that's kind of it. Well, that's, yeah, it's just trying to be the same person. Yeah. Yeah, wherever you go. So, yeah, I, I actually, I wrote about it, but I... I like agricultural metaphors because that's what we do, but I think work-life, when people say that, they, well, A, they're putting up a boundary that's artificial and unhealthy, and B, uh, they're, they're, when they say life, what they really mean is their family, but they forgot the third piece, which is themselves, which is critical. And so there's a, there's a, the old Native American agriculture is called Three Sisters because they would grow corn squash and beans as a trio because they have different harvest cycles and they support each other. And so I use that because it's worth your family or friends or whatever and yourself because the, the self part is getting lost. And then people are angry and they're pissed off and 
if you don't take care of yourself, the others don't work. But just like the corn squash beans, if one fails, but the other two are healthy, you're in way better shape. And people are counting hours at work when, in truth, there's things at work that raise your energy. There's things at work that are neutral and distracting, and there's things at work that lower your energy. This is part of what I'm going to talk about in my very short window on Friday. But so they're they're counting hours. Like I spent too many hours at work. This sucks. It's like no, there's things at work that build your energy. There's things at work that are a distraction, like. YouTube, I don't know, whatever. And there's things at work that lower your energy. There's things out of work that raise your energy. There's things out of work that lower your energy. And there's things that are distractions like social media or whatever. So if you just shift almost all your time into things that build your energy everywhere, it's like solar power. There's no end. I just try to have almost all of my time build my energy. So even though I didn't get enough sleep last night and you didn't either, we're both in a good mood. Supercharged. Right. Yeah. But uh, but uh, it's and together the conversation is making. Now there's all three of these nice people that I'm happy to see. And then we're going to have a nice group in here. And we're going to, you know, so each thing is building energy. So whereas most people are working on coal, which is going to, which runs out and creates a lot of noxious fumes (laughs) and unpleasant things that they have to fight off if you use solar power it's clean and people are all like your energy's up and my energy's up the other model is i pull your energy out you're exhausted or you pull mine out and i'm exhausted and i go home and oh my god what a nightmare i get it yeah you're doing it i'm just giving a construct yeah 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 yeah. with what you already do it's it is it is pretty uh pretty interesting and this is why I love when I when I get to yeah. interview people. And I don't usually interview people in person. This is no, the, it just worked out. It worked out Thanks great. For being willing to get off the plane. And- oh no, it's it's and well and it's about stress, you stress and distress, right? So yeah, what what correct. this is what and what we're actually yeah. talking about right. is you stress that motivational right. energy. I see it all right? the time. Stress gets a bad rap because. Yeah. There's the stress of pursuing what you believe in and your dreams, and there's the stress of going along with something you didn't want to do but you believe you should do, or that something's imposed on you that's unpleasant, but that's negative stress. And the other one is good, like the stress of whoever's going to the NBA Finals is stress they choose. (laughs) They're They're praying for that stress. Yeah. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guest today, Ari Weinzweig, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Stay safe out there. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.